Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is former Vanguard CEO, Jack Brennan. Jack is the author of a new book, More Straight Talk on Investing, which he co-wrote along with John Worth. And he was also author of Straight Talk on Investing, which was published in 2004. Jack served as the CEO of Vanguard from 1996 to 2008 and was chairman of the board from 1998 to 2009. He is now chairman emeritus and senior advisor of Vanguard. He also serves as the chairman of the board of trustees at Notre Dame University and has served on numerous corporate boards, including General Electric and American Express. He received his undergraduate degree at Dartmouth College and his MBA at Harvard Business School. Jack, welcome to The Long View. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, we're thrilled to have you here and congratulations on your new book. I want to talk about in what ways the landscape's gotten better for investors since the publication of Straight Talk on Investing in 2002, and in what ways would you say it's gotten worse? I think in aggregate, it's getting not just better, but far better. And I'll give you just a few reasons that I think that's true. You know, if you look at the cost of investing, it's down dramatically in, you know, this century. And, you know, cost is the only controllable component in an investment program. So I think that alone would make this a period of time where it's gotten better for investors. You know, I think there's a couple of product sets that have become mainstream that are really important. I think ETFs are one, you know, low cost, tax efficient, give you the kind of exposures you want, whether it's total market or specific sector. They're very liquid now. They weren't so much back then. And I think they're one of the great innovations, frankly, of the last half century. Uh, there haven't been all that many meaningful innovations. So that's a second plus. You know, a third for me, I'll get the, the downsides in a second, but a third is the availability of various advice platforms and at various price points. Dramatically different. You know, the Fidelity's, Vanguard, Schwab's have programs that are very cost efficient from trusted advisors. There are robos and they're all the way out to wealth management. but the availability, quality, and cost of advice makes me very optimistic about the investing environment for people. You know, to me, I think the downside is really all wrapped into one, which is just too much noise. You know, the availability of information on social media, the frankly mainstream media, loving, following fads. I think it's potentially dangerous. I don't think in the aggregate it's all that harmful, but I think the temptation for investors to hear too much and be prompted to do too much is greater today than it was. You know, we went through the 80s and 90s where education in mainstream media and through places like Morningstar was fabulous. It's changed in 20 years. I think we're at the too much of a good thing is a bad thing stage now. And you have to learn and you'll learn the hard way probably today that there's too much information. So don't react to it. But the balance sheet is very much positive, in my view, over the subsequent 18 or 19 years here, Christine. What are the key areas where your views have changed or evolved since the publication of the original Straight Talk on investing? Uh, again, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. I've, I've had a chance to spend a lot of time in the endowment world for a variety of places over the subsequent conduct. And 
I've learned a lot there, actually. You know, I've become more knowledgeable about privates, and I now think of equity exposure for down the road, certainly all investors, uh, retail and institutional sort of closet indexing, which I'm not very enamored with, real active equity indexing, and then private is a mainstream part of the business, but I'm not sure I appreciate it, and maybe it wasn't 18 years ago. I think that's a major change in my mindset, and done well can be complementary to more traditional ways of managing money. Probably as I've aged myself and watched my contemporaries, and I think about how do you manage yourself in retirement, two aspects of that I think are important. One is the need for advice at that stage. We can talk more about that. And then the second one, and it's environmental, but it's secular at this stage. It seemed cyclical at one time. It's now secular, and that's fundamentally low rates. And what's the role of fixed income? What is truly a balanced portfolio today? Those would be a few of the things. You know, one of the great parts about investing, you guys know it is, you should always be learning if you want to be successful and helpful. And uh, those are ones that when I started to write more straight talk on investing, I went back and read straight talk on investing and said, I was thrilled that the core principles really have shown themselves to be even more important during a challenging century. But then these other things are ones that I look at and I think, you know, I have a little more wisdom than I had then and obviously more experience. Given the changes to the landscape and the way your thinking has evolved, what do you think your key strategic priorities would be if you were leading an investment management organization today? Well, they'd be the same as when um, I was leading Vanguard. You know, first and foremost, it always has to be client outcomes, right? And there are a lot of things that go into that cost, you know, the performance type of products you offer. But if you're an investor management firm and you're not driven by client outcomes, you know, you might be successful for a cycle, but you're not going to be successful in the long haul. So that's the dominant theme that the great firms in our business leaders look towards, I think you have to be focused on value today and how does my value proposition stack up? And, you know, you may be an above average firm that performs really well because you're really strong in a certain active niche, that's fine. But to produce sort of market returns at market risk at a high price is something that's just not going to be a sustainable business proposition. So testing yourself on value and how do you think about your ability as a firm to deliver value, I think, is critical. Last thing I'd say, because it does matter, you know, this is a human capital business. Yeah, that's kind of simple two-part question that, you know, highly effective leaders ask in any business, but I think particularly in a business like this is what are we most passionate about and where do we think we can be the best in the world? And I don't think you need to hire, you know, a big consulting firm to help you think through strategy. If you go through just those three or four things, um, you need a lot of humility to say, I may be where I have been, isn't where I should be as a firm in the future. But that's how I think about our business, the levers that you pull to create a sustainable, growing, and successful organization. Shifting gears to the current environment, the past year's seen a near mania for small individual investors investing in individual stocks, cryptocurrencies, NFTs. What's driving that risk-seeking activity in your view? Well, I'd say two things, and it's happened for decades, if not centuries, right? So one is momentum. You know, we're in a 12-year bull market. 
with a couple of hiccups, but uh, 12-year bull market. So it looks easy to make money in many different asset classes, certainly uh, equities, but other, you know, crypto is a momentum thing, NFTs look like a momentum thing. And so I think momentum is the primary thing driving it. And, you know, the momentum shifts from here to there ends badly when it stops as it has in, in many different sectors. So I think that's a critical part of it. I also think social media, obviously, there are different ways for people to hear and learn, theoretically learn about things. And, you know, you just watch the headlines, whether it's crypto or whether it's, you know, GameStop or whether it's AMC, pick whatever you want, becomes a frenzied environment. And, you know, it's the term gamification, uh, all of that. Listen, I, I think it's a passing fancy. Personally, I don't think this is a substantive trend that's going to matter. It gets a lot of headlines because if you're traditional media, you get two headlines out of it, the run up and then the collapse. So it's two stories, not just one. But momentum markets create momentum markets until they stop and they stop badly, as we've seen, you know, again, through history, whether it's tulips or crypto or gold in the 80s or you know, go down your list. So that's what I look at it. And I look at it with curiosity, but not anything that I think is substantively meaningful, frankly, to markets. Well, you devoted a section of the book to speculative bubbles. Are we in bubble territory with any of these asset types, in your opinion? It sounds like you think we are. Which do you feel are most at risk of being in the bubble zone? You know, the important one is uh, equities, my view, right? It's the dominant asset class for your listeners, your readers. I don't happen to think we're in a bubble stage there. I think we're in a we're certainly not in a uh, deep value stage, right? You've got a concentrated large cap market with I don't know, top 10 stocks are like 30% of the market cap, the S&P, that's concentrated. You've got low yields, you've got full valuation. So to get good returns going forward, you're going to have to get exceptional growth and or multiple expansion. So I think that's a challenge in the equity market. Yeah, Christian, frankly, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about fringe markets, whether it's gold or crypto or something else. You know, they're trading markets. They're not really, I don't consider them investing markets. I think of them as trading entities and vehicles and uh, commodities is the same way. There are firms that make great livings uh, trading these things, but I think it's a dangerous game, bubble stage or not, for most individuals and financial advisors to even spend much time thinking about them. You sit on the board of American Express Corporation. That gives you a bird's eye view on consumer spending patterns. Are you seeing signs that consumers are throwing caution to the wind and splurging and perhaps unhealthy ways, or does the frenzy in things like meme stocks and SPACs seem somewhat compartmentalized? I'd say very compartmentalized, Jeff. You know, if you look at the industry data in credit cards, all through actually from a year ago to today, the credit performance has been far better than anyone would have expected. And, you know, unemployment continues to come down and so on. And so, I don't think the traditional consumer is frenzied at all. Obviously, you see lots of headlines about real estate in certain parts of the country and so on. That may be frenzied, but that's not consumption, right? That at least is investing. It may not be a particularly good investment. So I think what you see with meme stocks and SPACs and stuff is over here, but the core of the economy is people actually handle themselves pretty prudently. And you look at savings rates, right? They're through the roof. Uh, so you say, well, maybe they'll go on a binge after that. My personal view is 
obviously we all learned a ton in the last year and a half, but in terms of substantive impact on investing markets or on the economy, I don't happen to think the pandemic is going to be seen as something when we look back 10 years that's nearly as meaningful as global financial crisis in 08 and 09. Switching over to discuss investing, which is the focus of your book, Morningstar data suggests that target date funds have been a home run from the standpoint of investor outcomes, which you referenced earlier. I would guess that Vanguard data tell a similar tale, which is that investors buy them and sit tight. And we've also seen the lion's share of fund flows going to the very low cost target date series. Do target date funds effectively sort of solve the challenge of how to invest in the years leading up to retirement, or are there some retirement savers for whom they're not a good fit? I don't think there's anyone for whom they're not a good fit in the macro sense, Christine. Along with ETFs, they're one of the few really great innovations for you know retail investors in the last half a century, really. And so I think they are a great option. Are they the optimal option? Probably not at sort of either end of the spectrum, either the more sophisticated or higher wealth or at the less sophisticated or very risk averse. But if you think about a bell curve, that middle of the bell curve is incredibly well served by these because in your young years, it probably gives you more equity exposure than you might've thought you wanted. You know, the rebalancing that occurs is just, tremendous discipline for people. So I think they really serve the bulk of particularly 401k, 457 investors incredibly well. You know, I think if someone has a very high savings rate, it may not work for them because a high savings rate, in my view, gives you the ability to take more risk and you may want to have greater equity exposure than the traditional TDF would tell you to have. And that's the place where I see Somebody wants to be doing something different, but frankly, if your company only offered target date funds in their 401k plan, I think they're incredibly well served as a broad-based employee population. Obviously, I'm a fan. I think it's just a tremendous innovation, and it's the inherent discipline, and I think it is the education that goes around it that says, you know, in a sense, don't even look at this for 30 years. We'll take care of it for you. And it's not a naive promise. It's a promise to manage a portfolio at a cost that's incredibly low generally. And for most people, their savers, not actually investors, right? When you think about it, your readers and listeners are much more engaged. But most of the population is saving every two weeks from their paycheck. And what a great gift to have somebody manage it with no fee on top. In the book, you caution investors against using past returns in their forecasts, noting that it's better to err on the side of conservative return assumptions. What sorts of return expectations for stocks and bonds are reasonable to use for the next decade? And what about the next 30 years? I have to, I'm glad you asked about 30 years because, you know, we all have, even me, I hope, has the 30 year time horizon, right? So um, at my age, so. You know, 10 years is a long time, but most of us should be thinking in those kind of time frames. Listen, I think, you know, if you go back and look at historic data, it's fun to do. And you say, what kind of returns have equities produced and have bonds produced over time? And I think the prospects are very different for stocks and bonds, frankly. You know, from these interest rates, it's very hard to see. And I think in real returns, Jeff, very hard to see 
real returns on bonds being attractive in the next 10 years, period. That's a, you know, forecast. I'm not all that big on forecasting, but from these going in yields and these inflation rates, I think it's a real challenge. Um, you go out 30, you'll get paid something, particularly if you reinvest, you know, uh, rising rates are not a bad thing as a long-term bond holder and a mutual fund where you reinvest. So I can see getting a one or two percent real return on bonds over 30 years. I think it's less optimistic over 10. Equities, you know, my guess is you'd expect to see something less than what we've seen traditionally, six or seven percent real returns on equities over the next decade. But I see no reason that you shouldn't expect to get normal historic returns going out further if you believe in, you know, innovations that will come about in the economy, if you believe in globalization of economics and trade, if you believe in efficiencies and productivity. If you look over, you know, 200 years, stocks are giving you six and a half percent real returns. And if you look over 100, it's seven and a half. And if you look over 50, it's six and a half. So my own sense is that's what you should expect. And I would plan for less, as you alluded to. I think you always want to be surprised on the upside when you're doing financial planning. So anyway, that's the way I look at those two asset classes. I think it's a really challenging period of time for fixed income after what is now a 40-year bull market in months. We've noticed that fund flows seem to have taken kind of a contrarian turn in recent years. For example, investors have been adding to bonds and international equities rather than U.S. stocks, even though U.S. stocks have outperformed by a lot. What's driving that in your view? And is there any chance that it will persist going forward? So a couple of things. One of the data points that I don't have in my hands is some of what you see at fund flows is rebalancing in TDFs, right? And so there's a natural contrarian nature to target-based funds. They rebalance into the underperforming asset class. So I think that's probably part of it. And secondly, listen, I think there is the financial advisor community. It's one of the great things a financial advisor brings to their clients is discipline around rebalancing, which, you know, when you do it yourself, you have to force yourself to do it if you have a professional helping you. And I see the data, Christina, and I'm really happy. I'm happy to see it because to me, it smacks of discipline. And instead of following the momentum that happens in the, the SPACs and the, you know, meme stocks, they're saying, I want to be, you know, 60, 30, 10. And I'm going to rebalance to that, even though the U.S. stock market is running. Inherent in that data is especially because the U.S. stock market is running and I want to get back to where I want to be. I think it's a really good sign, you know, because you go back a long time ago when funds first became prominent in the 80s. The flows all went to the hot sector. And so I'm encouraged by the data. Some investors would argue that investors could reasonably own a total U.S. index fund, a total international stock fund, and a total bond fund and call it a day. I suspect you agree, but the question is, would a few additional assets be worthwhile? What would be at the top of your list in terms of additional assets that one might own for diversification purposes? Uh, I, I suppose, you know, private investments, that's something you mentioned earlier in the conversation. Perhaps that comes to mind, but what would be on your list? Really, I'd give you three things that I think could be very complimentary. Uh, one is 
highly concentrated, call it ownership mindset equities as a complement to that core portfolio. I didn't answer your question. I do agree that that's a very viable investment strategy to have those three products in hand and at the mix you want. You know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of active management and I'm a fan of highly researched, low turnover investor mindset, active management. So to me, that's one of the things that I think investors should look at because it will be different than take the risk in search of higher reward, but it will be different than the core equities that you get in the total stock market fund. So that's category one. Second, it's coming and it's coming at a reasonably rapid clip, I think, looking at a couple of sets of diversifiers. There are products in the institutional world that diversify through baskets of hedge funds, well-managed, well-overseen. That will come. I actually talk about it in this book a little bit. And then private equity and exposure to private equity. But with the big caveat, only seek it from a trusted provider who can show you that they in turn will be disciplined in the process of how they're going to invest. It's a, it's a space where if you look by number of funds, at least the academic data I've seen is the average private equity fund has underperformed a total stock market portfolio. Ones that have done well have been spectacularly well. So you have to be confident that you're investing in a great pool. The third area I would say is some real estate exposure beyond your home because it's income producing. The best real estate investment trusts are very well run businesses. They're diversified. They grow their income streams. And it's probably a more viable place to get income today than fixed income where you know, rising rates will be a tough place to make total return money. So those are three areas that I think about and I think are available and will be increasingly available to uh, people and your listeners. I wanted to ask about direct indexing, this idea of investors assembling customized baskets of stocks based on their needs and preferences. It's been getting a lot of buzz over the past few years. Do you think that idea holds promise? I think it holds promise, but like many things, promise with a risk. It will allow you, and I think particularly in a world where ESG has become more important, uh, that's one of the appeals of direct indexing, frankly. But the risk is, to me, uh, twofold. One, understanding the total actual costs of it, the cost of reinvesting, uh, the transaction costs involved, and so on. I think it's pretty simple to know what you know, a Vanguard ETF costs or a Vanguard index fund. It's in the prospectus and report. There are costs involved in investing directly in markets that are different, and I think people need to know that. And if they choose to go the direct indexing route because they want to be selective, just do it eyes open. The second part is the risk, right, that it becomes an active strategy, that I'm bearish on energy, so I'm going to take the energy stocks out of the S&P 500. You know, that's a choice you can make, but that's an active choice you're making. And so I think the education around direct indexing is going to be a very important part of whether or not it becomes a successful and very viable option in the investing marketplace. But it has appeal. I suspect it'll grow. But those would be my two caveats for people before they jump in and think it's, you know, merely buying 422 stocks of a 500 stock index. It's more complicated than that. What about ESG? You mentioned that a moment ago. How would you counsel investors to approach incorporating ESG criteria into their portfolios, if at all? 
it's not something I, I think that you expanded on too much in the book. So we'd be interested if you could elaborate on that topic here. Sure. Um, listen, I think ESG as more than a theme is really in some ways the first time in my long career, I think it's got legs and is going to be an important part of the investing landscape as we look out. I think climate is the catalyst for that in many ways and has been over the last five or six years. I think if I were counseling, and I, people do ask, and I say, well, well, look at several options for you to invest. I happen to do it in a package form of mutual fund is, is a good way to do it. But study five or six or seven of them and find out which one might marry up best with your values or the issues you're concerned about. I do think if you're going to invest in a package product, it gets hard to m- match every single thing you want, and that's one of the challenges with ESG. But I think getting educated before you buy is even more important in the space than in most of investing because there's other things beyond returns that matter to you and you want to make sure what you're investing in aligns with that. The other thing I counsel people to do is, you know, if you are investing in a in a fund or through some other commingled vehicle, you know, test the experience of the provider. You know, it's become a hot space like everything yet suddenly Lots of firms are ESG firms. There are some out there that have done it for a long time and uh, done it successfully. And so I think trying to find a partner, if you will, who you identify with their definition of ESG, and they've proven that they can do it successfully over time is the key to success here. For a while, it seemed like the fund industry had kicked some of its bad habits, like launching trendy <laughs> products at inopportune times. But we've seen a wave of new thematic funds in recent years, and lots of assets have flowed to at least some of them. Do you think this is just a function of where we are in the cycle and that a lot of this excess will get wrung out in the next bear market? Or should we have more of an open mind to these types of really narrow strategies? And I think a lot of it will be will be run out in the next bear market. But I also think we should always have an open mind, Christine. You know, um, and particularly I think in advised accounts for financial advisors. You know, there are certain narrow strategies that, for specific family needs and challenges, can meet a purpose. So I don't think you ever look at. I mean, there are just some bad ideas, and you don't need an open mind there. But I think having an open mind to other products again, well-run at a good price is, you know, a core to being successful in the long term. But you know well, most of them won't survive the bear market. The ones that have an enduring purpose and functionality in investment portfolios, well, and it'll be a small percentage, but you may not know ahead of time and needs may change and there may be very specific needs. So, I'm always interested and I try to get knowledgeable on new products, dismiss most of them. But once in a while, you, you know, even REITs, you know, you think about there was no market cap in REITs 25 years ago. And a lot of private companies became REITs. It became a very viable asset class. Many of us, I put myself in that camp, were suspicious that the REIT was just bailing out bad practices in the real estate industry. And it's turned into a very viable, you know, niche, if you will. So there'll be others like that, but uh, if I were a traditional retail investor, I wouldn't spend a lot of time listening to siren songs about you know recent term performance. You chair the board of trustees at the University of Notre Dame. During your tenure there, the university's endowment fund has enjoyed standout 
investment performance. What lessons has that experience imparted that you think would be useful to everyday investors? And what would be the wrong lessons for everyday investors to draw from the endowment fund success? That's a great way of putting the question, actually. Um, Listen, there are a lot of good lessons, but let me start with the most important one, at least the way I view it. And Notre Dame has done a tremendous job. The leader retired after 31 years a year ago, and he was succeeded by somebody who's been with the university for 27 years. And we hope we can see, you know, that kind of succession for generations, much as, you know, David Swenson passed away at Yale and same kind of thing at Yale and Yale and Notre Dame are the role models in my view for thinking long-term and thinking about how diversification can be a great value for you. And so that's the overriding lesson. And you find people to implement strategies who are deeply passionate about the mission. That sounds a little high-minded, but I believe it to be very true. And the endowments and foundations that have done best over meaningful periods of time have consistency of leadership, and mission-driven people in the investment offices, and it's tremendous to watch. There are a few other things that I think you learn. Uh, Privates is one of them. I know I've had a chance to um, obviously be involved with Notre Dame and a couple of other endowments, and you see the value of privates, well done. You see the value of diversifiers, you know, various kinds of long-only products or long-short products done well, not where I spent my career, right? The other two softer elements are criticality of finding and selecting great investment partners as an endowment. It's the same thing for any of us as individuals. Find the firm or two or three firms that you trust to always have your best interests at heart. And then patience, you know, and believing in your strategy are the great lessons. You know, the watchouts for me are, you know, I, I have a chapter in the book called It's a Smart Money Smart, Yes, But. And it's about endowments more broadly. And one of the watchouts is they have an advantage because they have been in this space for a long time. And they, in many ways, get access to firms that just generally aren't available to most of us as individuals or even other institutions. So don't think you can replicate the private equity performance at the best endowments, the venture performance at the best endowments. So I think that's a humility test that all of us have to have as individuals. Um, it's really important. And then the other thing you read about the liquidity premium um, that you get by buying private equity versus public, the data would say it's true, but any individual has to step back and say, can I withstand a period of time where I can't access my money? 2008-9, there were several fabulous universities that had cash crunches because They didn't have cash because they were overextended in the private marketplaces. So those are the two big watch outs for me. Don't expect to replicate the access that the best of these enterprises have because you won't be able to. And then don't get too swept up in the idea that there's a guaranteed illiquidity premium. There may not be. There's a Warren Buffett quote, which is the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. And you need to test yourself against that. I want to discuss financial advice, which you referenced at the top of the conversation. Fund costs have come way down over the past few decades, but advisor fees haven't changed a lot. That 
sort of 1% AUM fee is still very much the norm. Is that the next frontier, lowering the cost of advice for investors? And if so, what do you think will be the main catalyst for driving down advisor fees? Well, you see a whole other segment of the market. It's been created through places like Vanguard, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, a few others that you know, had in many ways been traditional do-it-yourself places and now offer a large and robust financial advice programs at 25 to 30 basis points. So I think that competition and, you know, it's still early days in a sense, but if those kinds of programs, I don't mean to highlight those three, but they're obviously very big, very prominent, that turns out to be highly successful. Inherently, there'll be price pressure, right? It's much as index funds, and Vanguard itself created price pressure in the in the mutual fund system. So my own view is it's inevitable. But the good news about it is that it also forces the whole advisory business to say, where's my value add here? And, you know, the advisor business that wasn't called a financial, it's called a brokerage business, right? Another year, because there were stock jockeys. Well, now there's a, a much more robust advice component to it. So I think you should expect to see erosion in some parts of the business from a price standpoint, because there's another very viable option that really wasn't there 20 years ago, and now it is. I don't happen to think pure robots are, are going to be that meaningful, frankly. But um, when big trusted firms come in at a price point that's a third, it's not the full service that you get at a warehouse, but if the net net is different, there'll be pressure. And and there already is pressure. You see it to various aspects of pricing in the financial advice business. But I think it's inevitable and it'll be another good thing for investors. In the book, you state that people who are accumulating assets for retirement can probably do without an advisor, but you unreservedly recommend hiring an advisor to help with the deaccumulation process in retirement. Can you explain what the key reasons are behind that? Uh, sure. You know, I, I said earlier, I guess, that, you know, most of us are savers through the accumulation period because for those who are fortunate to have one, the retirement plan is a dominant form of their retirement security accumulation. And it's in a TDF or something, uh, whatever happens, it happens every two weeks. You're not really making all that many investment decisions along the way. And you have time as an ally and you have earning power as an ally. So that's a risk reduction or allows you to take more risk. You know, you get to retirement and you have different objectives with your life moving out. It becomes a, a much more um, serious game around investing. And by the way, what I say in the book is you have to make a conscious decision not to have advice. It's slightly different than the way you framed it. Uh, you may choose to do it and that's fine, but you should make a conscious decision, not an autopilot decision, not to seek advice. And the primary reason for that for me is downside. You know, the downside risk of mistakes, either not taking enough risk or taking too much risk are greater in retirement. As I said, time isn't your ally and you don't have the earning power to offset it. And then Frankly, back to the earlier conversation, the options for getting a one-time plan or a light-touch plan or something else are so much greater today than they've ever been. It strikes me that uh, I tell people you should think about what you pay a financial advisor as an insurance premium. 
And it actually hits home with people. You know, you always hate paying your insurance premium unless you have a claim. And this is a way of thinking and saying, you know, I want to minimize my downside risk by having a professional with me side by side. And that's why I say it. And I've seen it in action. It's interesting. Lots of my contemporaries who have been do-it-yourselfers for 40 years, and then they come and say, what do I do? You know, and uh, I introduce some financial advisors or somebody, and they seem very comforted and feel that it was the right decision because they sleep better at night. We talked earlier about target date funds, which you think have been a great innovation, but it seems as though there's room for more innovation in the retirement income product space. Could there be better retirement income products in your view, or is the retirement income problem so complicated that it just can't be productized well? No, nothing's too complicated if there's the will, right? And uh, I'd say time, and I don't mean decades, with years that there'll be better solutions. The advent of defined contribution plans in my admittedly interested view, but the math says being in a defined contribution plan is better than being in a defined benefit plan. If you do it, you have an asset. If returns are decent, you accumulate more and your draw can be more than a pension. But people do value guaranteed income above Social Security. So I would hope we can, as a business, come up with understandable fairly priced deaccumulation products, income products that probably use artificial intelligence, maybe products of one, but you hope there could be collective parts of it to lower the cost. And I think it's the next great frontier, frankly. It's the mirror of TDS, Christine. And I'm sure they'll come because, you know, most annuities are just too expensive, right? And so you want to find something, and particularly in yield environments like this, that probably are index-based, highly efficient, uh, very technology-based, but allows you to make your mix of, call it guaranteed, and total return-based income over the last 30 or 40 years of your life easier to come by than it is today. How would you recommend that new retirees make retirement work in this era of very low yields and arguably lofty valuations? It's it's a um, it's in a sense the question of the decades really with all the baby boomers retiring first and to me the best thing you can do is get your spending in line at a level that is comfortable for you and again think about four percent I say plan for two for a couple of reasons and two is harsh so maybe it's three but I think understanding what you think of realistic draw off your assets combined with other sources, whether it's a pension or social security or both, set that draw as low as you can. And I think it's even more important today in a low yield environment because one of the things that's very hard, you get nothing on cash. You take a lot of risk if you go out in maturity. And, you know, last chapter of the book, uh, I, I wrote, after the book was about to be published and it's called, where did my income go? And I recommend pretty aggressively to people take a look at high quality basket of stocks, which will give you a yield that looks like maybe even higher than a 10 year treasury bond, give you a call on growth and then close your eyes to the volatility. 
you can do that, Jeff. I think it's a it's a great way to set yourself up and, and have some fixed income as ballast. But um, the question is, how much diversification value are you going to get from these yields out of fixed income? But spending is the key, and spending relative to your asset base to me is job one, two, three, and four, and then you make decisions from that. And you know, to me, that's the thing. If you're 52, you should be thinking about setting yourself up for whatever year you think you're going to retire and be in a financial entrepreneur mode, living off your assets. When we look at the data, it appears that a healthy share of workers are well-situated on the retirement savings rate, while other workers are dramatically under-saved and have quite literally nothing saved. Do you have thoughts on how our retirement system might better serve all workers, including lower-income once recognizing that you're not a policy specialist, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts there. I've actually served in a couple of task forces looking at this over the years. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Australian uh, mandatory super is a great program, right? They're almost oversaved when they get to retirement. But to me, I hope we can come up with a national will to implement something along the lines of mandatory, you know, we have mandatory social security contributions and, you know, ideally could you take two points of that and put it into investment accounts? That's a huge, you know, governmental challenge. But even if you said, you know, there'll be a mandatory deduction into the federal thrift plan or something like that, uh, not accessible until you hit retirement and maybe a batch, I think a match would be a great use of governmental dollars up to some income level and not a high number, but for the people who, you know, don't work at a company with a rich 401k plan. So I would love to see us get to a point where we're willing to say this matters, mandatory matters, which is never particularly important, although we do it in other spheres and we incent people. You save a thousand, we give you 500. You know, then I was fooling around with some numbers the other day. If you put a thousand dollars in for forty years, six percent real return, you end up with one hundred and fifty thousand dollars today's dollars. And if you took that pick pick a number, right, draw three percent off that, it's forty five hundred dollars. And I was working off somebody making thirty thousand dollars today. It's twenty percent of what you earn today, fifty maybe of what you earn today. So you'd have a 15% increment on your social security payment and pretty painless. You know, you guys know, you know, save once and then, so anyways, long winded, but it doesn't seem to have a priority today, but I hope it does because it is a crisis of equity. And this is one way of closing that equity gap for, you know, people in underserved communities people in hourly jobs where it's expensive for the employer to run a plan. So yes, I do have thoughts on it. I guess it's the bottom line. And and I really hope somewhere in the next few years, it resurfaces as a major issue, addressing multiple different priorities that are in the, uh, in the political discussion today. In closing, I wanted to ask you about those who've mentored you, you've had tough bosses who demanded excellence of you, you know, one of them being Jack Bogle. Clearly that paid off as you've had a very successful career, but not everyone responds well to the kind of tutelage you had. Is there a place for 
quote unquote tough love and and how did you strike that balance in the way you managed the teams you were responsible for? You know, I don't not to be argumentative, I don't you know, I don't see tough love as actually anything that is a meaningful concept in leadership, frankly. Um you know, nobody wants to work for and will follow a tough guy, if you will. Um I think of it as something very different, maybe with the same outcomes. But, you know, if you we have a leadership book at Vanguard, one of the chapter titles is Set High Expectations. You know, we hope emerging and experienced leaders will do. And, you know, if it's setting high expectations uh, with a shared commitment to excellence, it's very motivational to people. It's very motivational to people. And, you know, the best leaders I've worked with, worked for, uh, seen, have that very clearly defined set of high expectations for their teams. And then very importantly, it's all around driving to excellence at the end of the day. And people sign on to that. Uh, they they want to work for an organization and with people who are driven to be uh, as impactful, and particularly in a mission-driven organization. So I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm guessing if you had put 20 people who worked with me on the phone, they'd say, yeah, we had high expectations, still do wherever I am. And I think it's the only way you create value for your constituents in an enterprise that's enduring is to be driven every day to be better than you were yesterday. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. Well, it's it's a pleasure and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye all. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.